Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 49, the book of Acts, chapter 23. Back in Acts chapter 19, we read this in verse 21. Sometime later, Shaul decided by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome. Now, what we have been studying ever since then is the route, full of twists and turns. It will indeed eventually bring Paul to Rome. Now, today in Acts chapter 23... We're going to continue to follow the circumstances that would lead Paul to the city he says he must visit. These circumstances are, of course, invisibly directed and orchestrated by God. In fact, in Acts chapter 27, we read this in verses 23 and 24. For this very night there stood next to me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. He said, don't be afraid, Shaul. You have to stand before the emperor. See, it was important for Paul to go to Rome because it was important to God. I doubt Paul had any idea why it was so important. And no doubt when Paul first voiced his unction to visit Rome, he thought it would be to evangelize the gospel of Yeshua just as he had in so many other cities in the vast Roman Empire. Now I'm certain he expected to speak to Jews in their synagogues, in this great city, but as often happens with believers, when we say yes to God, the outcome and the path to get to the goal can be significantly different from our wildest expectations. Paul was going to stand before governors, kings, even the emperor, something that was not on his agenda. However, God never said that the circumstances that enabled this audience with the powerful elite of the Roman Empire would be especially pleasant. In fact, a prophet named Agav specifically told Paul that Jerusalem would be the beginning point of his journey, but that it would be as a persecuted person under arrest, not as one traveling as a welcomed emissary. Why was Rome so important to God? Other than an opportunity for Paul to speak to the Gentile heads of the Roman government about God's plan of redemption and the purpose of the Jewish people, we're not specifically told. However, in retrospect, I think we can reasonably assume that it had at least as much to do with the historical reality that within a few decades after Paul's martyrdom, with the Jerusalem temple destroyed, the Jewish leadership of the way either dead or scattered, and Gentiles finally in full control of the Jesus movement, the headquarters of the Gentile Christian church would be in Rome. It is fascinating, at least it is to me, that the Gentile Christian church institution would become situated at the capital and center of the Gentile world government as envisioned by the prophet Daniel. And it would remain that way right on through today. And it's going to continue until Messiah returns. And then he will institute a theocratic world government back in Jerusalem, where it all began. Let's read Acts chapter 23 together. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. 
if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1393. Shaul looked straight at them and he said, Brothers, I have been discharging my obligations to God with a perfectly clear conscience right up until today. But the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, Hananiah, ordered those standing near him to strike him on the mouth. And then Shaul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Will you sit there judging me according to the Torah, yet in violation of the Torah, order me to be struck? And the men nearby said, This is the high priest of God that you're insulting. And Shaul said, Oh, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it says in the Torah, You are not to speak disparagingly of a ruler of your people. But knowing that one part of the Sanhedrin consisted of Tzedukim, that's the Sadducees, and the other the Purushim, that's the Pharisees, Paul shouted, Brothers, I myself am a Purush, a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. And it is concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm being tried. And when he said this, an argument arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the crowd was divided. For the Sadducees deny the resurrection and the existence of angels and spirits. Whereas the Pharisees acknowledged both. So there was a great uproar with some of the Torah teachers who were on the side of the Pharisees standing up and joining in. We don't find anything wrong with this man. And if a spirit or an angel spoke to him, what of it? The dispute became so violent that the commander, fearing that Shaul would be torn apart by them, ordered the soldiers to go down, take him by force, and bring him back into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for just as you have borne a faithful witness to me in Jerusalem, now you must bear witness in Rome. The next day, some Judeans formed a conspiracy. They took an oath, saying they'd neither eat nor drink until they'd killed Saul, uh, Shaul. More than 40 were involved in this plot. And they went to the head priest and to the elders and they said, We have bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we've killed Paul. What you are to do is to make it appear to the commander that you and the Sanhedrin want to get more accurate information about Paul's case so that he will bring him down to you while we, for our part, we're prepared to kill him before he ever gets here. But the son of Shaul's sister got wind of the planned ambush and he went into the barracks and he told Shaul. And Paul called one of the officers and said, take this man up to the commander. To the commander, He has something to tell him. So he took him, he brought him into the commander and he said, the prisoner Shaul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and he led him aside privately and he asked, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Judeans have agreed to ask you tomorrow to bring Shaul down to the Sanhedrin on the pretext that they want to investigate his case more thoroughly. But don't let yourself be talked into it because more than 40 men are lying in wait for him. They have taken an oath neither to eat nor drink until they kill him. And they're ready now. They're only waiting for you to give your consent to their request. And the commander let the young man go, cautioning him, don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Well, then he summoned two of the captains and he said, Get 200 infantry soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight and 70 mounted cavalry and 200 spearmen. Also provide replacements for Paul's horse when it gets tired. Bring him through safely to Felix, the governor. And the commander wrote the following letter. From Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Judeans and he was about to be killed by them when I came upon the scene with my troops and rescued him. And after learning that he was a Roman citizen, I wanted to understand exactly what they were charging him with, so I brought him down to their Sanhedrin. Now I found out that he was charged in connection with questions of their Torah, but that there was no charge deserving death or prison. 
But when I was informed of a plot against this man, I immediately sent him to you and also ordered his accusers to state their case against him before you. So the soldiers following their orders took Shaul during the night and they brought him to Antipatris. There, uh, then returned to the barracks after leaving the cavalry to go on with him. The cavalry took him to Caesarea. They delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and he asked what province he was from. On learning he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a full hearing after your accusers have also arrived. And he ordered him to be kept under guard in Herod's quarters. Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin. He's defending himself against some vague charges of blasphemy. And although the Roman tribune, who has custody of Shaul, still isn't sure exactly what it is that Paul has said or done that so many Jews in Jerusalem are in such a homicidal mood, but here I'd like to speculate that what we're witnessing is not actually the common everyday variety of Holy Land Jews who want to tear Paul to shreds, but rather it's members of the party or faction called the Zealots. The Zealots were Jewish supernationalists, so they hated Gentiles with a passion. They openly preached civil disobedience and revolt against Rome. And they expected every Jew to observe halakha, Jewish law, down to the last detail as proof of their loyalty to their Jewish heritage. An even more violent and murderous faction called the Sakari were an offshoot of the Zealots. I think it's probable that Christ's traitorous disciple Judas was a Zealot. The point's this. It's been difficult for Jewish and Christian scholars alike to pinpoint exactly what crime Paul had committed that these Jews were openly determined to kill him. And, and, and therefore, what was he trying to defend himself against? We know that the accusation is more or less that of blasphemy, but how or precisely when did Paul blaspheme? Thus in verse 1, to paraphrase, Paul says to the Sanhedrin that he's lived his life with a perfectly good conscience before God. This brought an instant reaction by the high priest who ordered someone standing next to Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now we see two charges against him that are listed by Luke and both of them are discussed in Acts 21. First, James says that Shaul is being accused by some Jews of teaching against circumcision, against circumcision for Jews, which is considered as a crime against Moshe, against Moses, and that he spoke against the traditions. Second is that a person on pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Asia, remember this is for the occasion of Shavuot, says that Paul spoke against the temple, even bringing a Gentile into the temple, thus defiling the sacred building and all of its holy grounds. Now according to the biblical law of Moses, there's no death penalty for teaching against circumcision or for not being circumcised. And biblically speaking, it's not a capital crime to bring a Gentile into the temple courtyard or even to speak against the temple. But Jewish tradition, especially that of the Judean Jews, had made it a capital offense. I've discussed with you in past lessons that it is vital, especially when reading and interpreting Paul in Acts or, or any of his letters to understand that he uses the vernacular and the common speech of his day. Only rarely, rarely is Paul ever technical 
or is he highly academic or does he does he offer minute nuances as he discusses the Torah versus Jewish traditions and customs so we must carefully consider the circumstances when we get into these issues of accusations of breaking the law or speaking against the law or when someone is accused of blasphemy see we must always ask who are the parties that are contending with one another who's being accused who's doing the accusing where is the scene of action occurring because that also plays a significant role see blasphemy was not usually a technical theological term in those days. It really was more of a nasty epithet thrown at someone who you strongly disagreed with concerning doctrines of Judaism. So the bottom line is that Paul had greatly irritated the supranationalist zealots who were easily irritated and they stirred up many other Jews mostly because Paul dutifully took the Jewish message of a Jewish Messiah who gave salvation and he offered it to hated Gentiles. And the zealots' response to most problems that raised their passions was to kill the person they disagreed with. Then to characterize their deed as their pious obligation as defenders of God's word. But in reality, they were not defending God's word. They were defending Jewish law, halakha, which had been formulated in the institution of the synagogue. They were more defenders of man-made customs and traditions than actual biblical commandments. And this was because they were first and foremost in these unbearable days of occupation by Rome, defenders of Jewishness and all that it entailed. But Paul was seen as fraternizing with the enemy. And so that made him a target. Now while Christians have for centuries shaken our collective heads and heaved heavy sighs in such a, a terrible attitude of Jews towards Gentiles, towards Christianity. Let me point out something. Let me point out that Christianity stands at the head of the list when it comes to defending man-made religious traditions and doctrines far more than defending what God commands in his Bible. Let's be honest about this. The reality is that long ago, Christianity declared God's biblical commandments as null and void. <laughs> so what's left for the church to defend is man-made doctrines and traditions. But just as with the zealots and other Jews in Paul's day, Christians nonetheless claim that these man-made doctrines and traditions so closely reflect God's word that they are essentially one and the same. See, we are reading about the result of such a religious worldview here in Acts 23, and it's endangering Paul's life. It is the same religious worldview that drove the Christian Crusades of a thousand years ago. The Inquisition of 500 years ago. And it drives the fractious, casual, and indifferent nature of the church in modern times. You know, as a middle-aged former Catholic, who now holds no faith at all, recently told me, for him to consider a return to Christianity, it would take a great modernization of Christianity so that it would become relevant to him, and to his family, and to humanity in tangible ways. You know what? I told him I agreed with him. And that is exactly what Seed of Abraham Ministries is all about. It's only that the route 
to modernization of Christianity is an irony in itself. The way forward is to go back to our roots, our Hebrew roots. We must return to the perspective of the earliest days of our faith when Yeshua walked this earth. And when Peter and Paul and James led the believing community. Back to a time when the Holy Scriptures, they were the source of truth. When our doctrines were at their purest, when holiness was pursued relentlessly, and when doing was as important as being for the followers of Messiah Yeshua. Well, as Acts 23 opens, Paul's addressing himself to the members of the Sanhedrin. However, it doesn't appear that this was a formal court gathering as much as an ad hoc council of inquiry that was quickly assembled. See, Lysias, the, 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 the Roman commander, had ordered the Sanhedrin to question Paul, so this was by no means a formal trial. In reality, this council was there to ascertain exactly what, if any, charges were to be brought against Paul so that Lysias could understand what this hubbub was all about. Paul begins by not so much declaring his innocence, innocence of what? But rather he declared his loyalty to the God of Israel and therefore to his Jewish heritage reflected by a lifetime of proper behavior. Thus, he says, his conscience was clear. It was a general assertion about his character. It was not a denial of formal charges. Since at this point, the potential charges were still being ascertained. Now verse 2 says that the high priest Hananiah, or Ananias in Greek, instructed someone who was standing next to Paul to hit him on his mouth for daring to assert his good character. See, it must be understood that the point of hitting him in such a manner was to shame Paul. In the Middle East then as now, a male being struck on the face caused the recipient of the blow to lose his honor. And this is an extremely serious and volatile matter in Oriental society. Paul turned and he railed at the high priest and called him a whitewashed wall. Now the idea is that a whitewash is a very thin facade that covers over the reality of what's underneath it. And then Paul has the chutzpah to tell Hananiah that God will strike him back and this because the high priest is supposed to be the supreme authority on the Torah. But here, before charges are even made, before a trial, Paul is treated as though he's guilty of something and essentially punished, something the Torah does not permit. Some other men standing nearby then rebuke Paul by saying, how dare he speak to the high priest in such a way? Paul goes on to say he didn't know that this man was the high priest. He quotes the Torah commandment that instructs that any ruler of the Jews should be talked to with respect. Now, although we could spend a long time dealing just with this matter, I'm going to make it fairly brief. What about Paul's initial words offended the high priest? How can it be that Paul didn't know that this man was the high priest? Might Paul have caught himself and realized he'd done wrong in his insult and so made up some flimsy excuse that he didn't know that this man was the high priest? Modern scholars have wrestled so much with this that many are ready to throw out Acts chapter 23 altogether as being so improbable that it doesn't belong in the Bible. Others have said that Paul did wrong. He sullied his apostolic credentials by reacting in such a way towards the high priest. Because as a Christian, he should have accepted the shame and responded with silence, usually citing Jesus as one who was even spat on. But he said nothing. 
Now, interestingly, when we check with the Scriptures, we see that Yeshua had something quite similar happen to him as it's happening to Paul. Let's, let's see how he responded to it. In John 18, 19 through 23, John 18, 19 through 23, we read this. The Kohen Hagadol, that's the high priest, questions Yeshua about his Talmudim, his disciples, and about what he taught. And Yeshua answered, I've spoken quite openly to everyone. I have always taught in a synagogue or in the temple where all Jews meet together. I've said nothing in secret. So why are you questioning me? Question the ones who heard what I said to them. Look, they know what I said. What? These words, one of the guards standing by Yeshua slapped him in the face. And he said, this is how you talk to the high priest? Yeshua answered him, if I did something wrong, then state publicly what was wrong. But if I was right, why are you hitting me? So Yeshua, speaking to the high priest, certainly had something to say about being unjustly struck. And like Paul, he was struck where? On the face, which was intended to shame him. Notice that Yeshua does not appear to have said anything against the high priest any more than Paul did. Yeshua merely asked, why was he being questioned? While Paul only stated his own good Jewish character. But in both cases, this was seen as an affront to the high priest. I believe I can address this rather forthrightly. Yeshua was dealing with Caiaphas. Paul was dealing with Ananias, who, by the way, was the eighth high priest to follow Caiaphas. Both men were illegitimate high priests. They were not of the proper lineage. They were wealthy and they had paid large sums of money to the Roman authorities for their positions. They were aristocrats, Sadducees, the highest class of society who saw themselves as entitled, far better than common Jews. So for Yeshua now, for Paul to say anything before them or to them, that in itself was an affront. And although it wouldn't hold true for Yeshua, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a direct competitor and an antagonist to the Sadducees. They inherently didn't like one another. So after Paul's hit on his mouth, he spontaneously spews an insult towards this illegitimate high priest Ananias, calling him a whitewashed wall. He's saying, you fake, you phony. But then, Paul seems to back down when he's chastised for his retort by saying, oh, I didn't know that this man was the high priest. Now, first of all, the high priest at all times was identifiable by his special garments. So the thought that some scholars have that Paul had not been to Jerusalem in a long time and a number of high priests had come and gone since his last visit so he truly didn't know what the high priest looked like just doesn't pass the smell test for me. Paul of course knew who, who he was dealing with. I think Paul was only being Paul. He could be harsh and pretty sarcastic on occasion. Anybody remember that famous comment, you stupid Galatians? He had no respect for this fake high priest. And he was a fake. And it is my contention that by saying he didn't know he was the high priest, it was just a heavy dose of sarcasm. And in responding to the others who chastised Paul for his strong words towards the high priest, Paul quotes Exodus 22-27. But he does it in a way that essentially says that since one isn't supposed to speak disparagingly against a ruler, then the fact that he was brought to task for his words must mean that this man is a ruler. But that's the only way he'd know it 
because the high priest certainly doesn't behave like a ruler. See, this entire exchange was was tongue-in-cheek. It was a battle of wits. And let's always remember, by the way, Paul was just a man. He wasn't perfect. Nor did he have Christ's perfect character or disposition. I mean, perhaps, by the letter of the law, Paul sinned in his harsh words to Ananias. But, I must admit, I see it as a spade calling a spade. Even if it might have been better left unsaid. On the other hand, I'm a little bit biased. See, I see Paul as a kindred spirit, if not a kindred temperament. So maybe he just did what I think I would have done, not felt one bit of guilt over it either. And I'm rationalizing it a little bit. So, anyway. So now the clever Paul changes his tactics. Oh, I like this guy. His sarcasm turns to artful calculation. Having served on the Sanhedrin in some capacity in the past, he knows how they work, he knows how they think. And he's well aware of the animosity between its Sadducean members and its Pharisaical members. So he announces himself as a Pharisee, even the son of a Pharisee, and throws out the hot-button issue of resurrection from the dead like a piece of raw meat expectedly thrown into a den of starving lions. In fact, he frames the persecution he is undergoing on this very issue. This instantly puts the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin in a bind. If they find fault, or, let me take that. This puts the Pharisees who are, who are part of the Sanhedrin, it puts them in a bind. Because if they find fault with Paul, they're going against their own doctrines concerning resurrection. What are they going to do? Immediately there erupted, we're told, a loud and heated argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, this is because the Pharisees believed in the possibility of bodily resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees stood firmly against it. There were other strong differences as well. You know, I'd like to quote Josephus who explains the crux of the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees' theological doctrines as they are quite instructional for those who study the New Testament. He says this, of the two first-name schools, the Pharisees, who are considered the most accurate interpreters of the law and hold the position of the leading sect, attribute everything to fate and to God. They hold that to act rightly or otherwise rests indeed for the most part with men, but that in each action fate cooperates. Every soul they maintain is imperishable, but the soul of the good alone passes into another body, while the souls of the wicked suffer eternal punishment. The Pharisees had passed on to the people certain regulations handed down from former generations but not recorded in the law of Moses for which reasons they are rejected by the Sadducean group who hold that only those regulations should be considered valid which were written down in scripture and that those which had been handed down by former generations need not be observed. And concerning these matters, the two parties have come to controversies and serious differences. The Sadducees having the confidence of the wealthy alone, but no following among the populace, while the Pharisees have the support of the masses. Every child attending Sunday school has heard of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But it's long past the time for us to shuck off these simplistic notions that one group is good and the other one's bad. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. In his own speech, he describes himself as still a Pharisee. So first off, 
let us agree that Paul saw no discrepancy in being both a Pharisee and a believer in Christ. But let us also use what we have learned regarding the use of the term law in the New Testament. Josephus says, I just quoted it to you, that the Pharisees were considered the most studied and correct interpreters of the law. But then he turns around and tells us the Sadducees only accepted what Moses handed down in the scriptures and their doctrines were built on that alone. So what we have here is that when Josephus employed the term law, nomos, he was referring to Jewish law, halakha, not the laws of Moses as pertains to the Pharisees. He goes on to explain that the Pharisees followed certain regulations not found in the law of Moses, not found in the Torah. And that the Pharisees were accepted as the religious authorities of the vast majority of the masses of common Jews. Why is that? It's because of the synagogue system. It was led by the Pharisees. It was a man-made alternative religious system. It was an alternative to the temple, which employed a large and growing volume of man-made traditions and doctrines as their primary guide used to live out their faith. Thus, what the Pharisees believed is what the common masses of the Jews, both inside the Holy Land and in the diaspora, this is what they were taught was the true religion for Jews. Later, well past New Testament times, this alternative religious system of the synagogue was given a name, Judaism. Now the Sadducees, wealthy aristocrats, who were the temple authorities, and and they formed most of the priesthood. The temple and the priesthood were the original God-made religious system of the Hebrews. They claimed that they rejected the traditions that the Pharisees taught and the masses adopted, and instead they abided only by the Torah, the laws of Moses. Now on the surface, that sure sounds like the right thing to do. Of course, the fact that the high priest had for over a hundred years become a ceremonial office open to the highest bidder instead of being a hereditary position according to a specific line descended from Aaron and due to their brazen thieving of the temple treasury and a lot more offensive behavior they demonstrated the hypocrisy of their claim of pious fidelity to the laws of Moses So this that I've just described to you, that Josephus described to you, this is the condition of the religion of the Hebrews all throughout the New Testament era. And this context is the lens through which we must view every word uttered by Christ, Paul, Peter, James, Luke, everybody. These were the conditions. So armed with that understanding, then we're not surprised at this great uproar that erupts at the Sanhedrin and and the entire hearing over Paul devolves into a doctrinal brawl. I mean, can't you just picture the bewildered Roman tribune Lysias standing there and observing this ruckus? I mean, he came here for clarity from the best, the wisest of the Jewish religious authorities about what it is that had set off the riot against Paul and now the council that was supposed to sort this all out has dissolved into shouting in chaos. And no doubt all the shouting was in their native Hebrew language. I mean, Lysias is at a loss for even understanding the nature of the dispute he's he's witnessing. What choice did the Pharisees on the Sanhedrin have at this point but to side with Paul, a fellow Pharisee, on the doctrine of resurrection? Which for Paul, 
was at the heart of the matter for believing upon Yeshua as the Messiah and the Son of God. In 1 Corinthians, to show you how important this is to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 17, Paul says this, because if the dead are not raised, then the Messiah has not been raised either. And if the Messiah has not been raised, your trust is useless. You're still in your sins. The Pharisees declare, we don't find anything wrong with this man. And if a spirit or an angel spoke to him, what of it? Oh, and by the way, the Sadducees also didn't believe in spirits or that angels had any interaction with humans. I mean, are you getting the picture here? This theological warfare replaced whatever rational investigation Lysias was hoping for to figure out what Paul might have done to warrant a mob of Jews wanting to kill him. In fact, the Sanhedrin got so out of control over the issue of resurrection that Lysias had to remove Paul from the scene before any harm came to him. Somehow, I think, as Paul was escorted away, he had just the hint of a wry little smile upon his lips. I mean, look, Lysias has an unfixable mess on his hands. And you know what? When that happens, there's only one choice. Give it to your boss. <laughs> Verse 11 has Paul, still under arrest, ushered back to the barracks at the Antonia Fortress for his own safety when suddenly the Lord comes to Paul in his cell and he tells him to take courage. <laughs> because it's going to get a whole lot more interesting from here forward. Just as Paul has borne witness to the gospel of Christ in Jerusalem, God is going to get him to Rome to do the same. What Paul had not realized up to this time is that his passage to Rome was going to be as a prisoner. When the Lord wills something to happen, happens and as much as the Lord loved Paul Paul's discomfort was of a secondary concern it really was his discomfort was of a secondary concern when it comes to God achieving his purposes through him see this kind of flies in the face of the modern western church's prosperity doctrine where God's purpose is to make his believers comfortable, happy, safe, and wealthy. And I urge you, I'm really serious about this, I urge you that if you've been listening to any preacher who teaches based on this doctrine, you turn away from it. Because it is a self-serving lie. It makes preachers wealthy and it will do nothing but make you doubt your faith. When loss of health or heartbreak or calamity eventually comes your way, as it does to all of us at one time or another. Well, the next day, these frustrated Jews who wanted Paul dead, they weren't about to give up. These zealots made a new plan to get the Romans to take Paul out of the fortress and even though he would be escorted by a Roman guard, they planned on taking him and killing him. Now I think we need to pause for a moment here to grasp just how seriously dedicated these zealots were. They knew for certain that some of them would die or be seriously injured or arrested and probably executed for what they were planning to do. No doubt there would also be collective punishments of other Jews by the Roman government for such a defiance of Roman authority to attack a Roman garrison. But they were so passionate about defending their Jewishness and about Jews like Paul consorting with Gentiles as being tantamount to treason that it was worth it to them to trade their lives for his death. 
starting at verse 12, we get some general details about this conspiracy as we learn that 40 men will lead the attack to take Paul. They swore an oath that they wouldn't eat or drink until they'd accomplished their goal. So they went to the high priest and some others of the Sanhedrin and they told them of their plan because their cooperation, of course, was key to making it work. I'm going to point out the obvious. Naturally, they would have not have gone to any of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin because they sided with Paul. So, that is why they went to the high priest. He was a Sadducee. And he could control who got this information about the plot. Now the plot involves the high priest sending a message to Lysias to say that they want Paul to come back so they can continue their investigation. But on the short trip between the Antonia Fortress and the Hall of Hewn Stones, where the Sanhedrin met, the conspirators then would fall upon the Roman garrison, steal Paul away from them, and quickly kill him. And although it's not explicitly stated, clearly the high priest and the Sadducees who sided with him went along with this plan, which is just a further sad indication of how corrupt and misguided the Jewish religious authorities had become by now. Well, in verse 16, we're introduced to a new character. Paul's nephew, the son of his sister who apparently lives in Jerusalem. Now here we learn a little bit about Paul's family. And as often happens with a bachelor, he becomes close to a nephew as sort of a surrogate son. And so in some unexplained way, this nephew found out about this conspiracy against Uncle Paul and he has the courage to reveal it to the Roman Tribune in order to save him. Now the sudden appearance of this unnamed nephew is yet another reason why many modern scriptural commentators feel that the account of Acts, 20, Acts chapter 23 is so suspect that it ought to be removed in part or in full from the book of Acts. And one part of their discomfort with this nephew is just how he, assuredly, a rather young Pharisee, would get wind of what must have been a carefully guarded secret, known only to the zealots, the high priests, and a few hand-selected Sadducean Sanhedrin members. Now, I don't know why Luke doesn't tell us more details about this incident. Now, perhaps he could never ascertain how the nephew got this information. But that's no reason to disbelieve the account because I can easily understand how if the Sadducee camp or even the zealots had been infiltrated by someone who fed information to the Pharisees, a chronicler of the event like Luke would not have been told who that source was or how it happened. Only what happened. So there's any number of good reasons why Luke didn't give us details regarding the information about the plot that Paul's nephew had obtained. It's fairly clear that this nephew is a young person, probably a teen, maybe in his very early 20s. He must not have seemed very threatening, or he sure wouldn't have been allowed to access the fortress to speak with Paul and, and then with Lysias. Well, the Nis this nephew told his conspiracy story first to his uncle and then to the Roman Tribune. Now Lysias obviously believed this young man. And especially after witnessing this almost irrational animosity and violent tempers flaring even among members of the Sanhedrin, it was not a hard sell to imagine that the zealots would try something almost suicidal in order to kill Paul. Lysias told the young man to tell no one that he had informed the Romans about it. It was time to get Paul out of here. The commander quickly summons two centurions. Tells them to get some foot soldiers, cavalry, some spear carriers ready for a fast march to Caesarea Maritima. This is the provincial capital. And they would leave at the third hour of the night. Now, although our complete Jewish Bible says this, they're talking about 9 p.m., 
it is likely somewhat later than that. Remember, this all happened in conjunction with the Shavuot festival that comes early in the summer. So the daytime would have lasted till at least 8 p.m. or so. The Romans divided the day into two parts. Daytime and nighttime. And then they assign, now follow me on this, it's a little hard, but you'll get the idea in a moment. Then they would assign 12 hours to the daytime period and 12 hours to the nighttime period. So a Roman hour was only a division of time. It wasn't a standard measurement of time. Thus, if we have, for instance, a summer day, and there's 15 hours of daylight, but only 9 hours of darkness, then the 15 hours of daylight is divided into 12 parts. They call these parts an hour. But the 9 hours of darkness is also divided into 12 parts. Each of the 12 parts is called an hour, even though a Roman hour at night would have been of shorter duration than a Roman hour of daytime. And the length of an hour would then vary day by day as each season produced more or fewer daylight hours. Thus in the New Testament, trying to ascertain a time according to our modern clocks can be a little bit daunting. Especially when a Roman hour is not the same as a Hebrew hour because the Hebrews divided their day differently than the Romans. Here it seems clear that since this activity involved the Romans it was the Roman hour that's being talked about. So the third hour at night would have been somewhere between 11 o'clock and 12 midnight roughly that time of year according to our modern time standards. Anyway, clearly Lysias did not want the zealots to know that anything was happening till after they were long gone. And from the large count of the soldiers that we were given, the size of the contingency was sufficient to fight off those 40 zealots even if they had enlisted additional comrades. And we'll continue with Paul's perilous journey to Rome next time. <laughs>